Well, I thank the Holy Spirit for being present here. And he is because I asked KT to do the call to worship. And probably at the time I asked him, I didn't even know what my subject was exactly. And I certainly didn't have the scripture texts. So there was no communication between us beyond that. But I would say that that little call to worship that he shared is an excellent summary of the longer message that I'm about to share. And so I just, I just praise God for his Holy Spirit. He's present here, and I pray that he'll work this word in the hearts of each one of you to bear the fruit that he has foreordained to bear in your lives. Just a brief comment on the two segments of Scripture, the Matthew segment, 21 verses 42 to 46. The scene there is Jesus in the temple at Jerusalem, He's speaking to the chief priests and elders of the people. And, as is clearly portrayed, it wasn't you know, a, just a, a tea party that they had invited him to and were warmly receiving him. There was great hostility. In fact, they wanted him dead. That was their goal, number one. They wanted Jesus dead. And this ties in a bit. Uh, my message today plays off a little bit. The idea was actually sparked when Peter preached a couple of weeks ago. And uh, his message was on, it was focused on the betrayal of Judas. And Judas was a central point of that. And how Judas was the vehicle that these chief priests and elders that were here saying, they didn't want to lay hands on Jesus right then. There was a crowd around. And they didn't want to have a riot, as Peter explained, because there were way too many people in Jerusalem at this Passover time, and they couldn't have probably stopped it. And so they had to be careful. And they were being careful. But they, they were looking for the opportunity, and it was soon given them by Ju Judas. Judas Iscariot. There's two apostles with the first name Judas, so... Uh, I'm going to be saying Judas Iscariot when I mention him today because that's the Judas that we're talking about. Uh, key verse in that 42 through 46 is verse 44. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And then the section in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 4, my point in including that is it speaks of what I call common grace. And what I mean by common grace is grace that God bestows on everyone, on the believer and the most wicked sinner alike, his sunshine coming through these windows so beautifully right now. His rain that we've had, thankfully, in recent weeks. Uh, unless you're hosting a harvest party, then maybe the timing wasn't perfect. But um, these are common graces that the Bible says, Scripture says, God sends his rain on the just and the unjust. This section of 1 Corinthians, verse 4, says, And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, 
and the rock is capitalized because it's referring to Jesus, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So, again, just maybe keep in mind that First Corinthians segment is included because it speaks of what I call common grace, that God liberally sheds on saint and sinner alike. I've titled my message today, A Tale of Two Sinners. For those of you who are familiar, lest I be accused of plagiarizing, yes, inspired by Charles Dickens' uh, famous work, A Tale of Two Cities. And I'm not deeply familiar with that. I haven't read it. But I did watch, a little while back, a BBC uh, portrayal of that and enjoyed it. And a major theme in A Tale of Two Cities is that things are not always as they seem. In it, we see that a person who appears to be a thoroughly, thoroughly disreputable can develop sterling character. And that an individual who appears to be a poor but honest purveyor of righteousness and a seeker of justice may indeed prove to be a vindictive, bloodthirsty villain when the opportunity to wield power presents itself. Kind of makes you think of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Two characters are central in my tale of two sinners. There better be two sinners, right, if I'm titling it a tale of two sinners. And those two sinners are Peter, the apostle, and Judas Iscariot, also an apostle. Both of them part of the Twelve. Both of them who were present in this Passover meal that is coming soon after we, you know, the scripture that we read from Matthew. So why do I have Peter and Judas Iscariot side by side as my tale of two sinners? Well, one thing, it's a reminder to all of us that we all, as scripture tells us, are sinners saved by grace. There's not one of us sitting here today who is not a sinner. There's not one person walking on the face of this earth or that ever walked on the face of this earth other than Jesus Christ who is not a sinner. So yes, Peter is one of two sinners. And the other sinner, Judas Iscariot, he gets cast as the villain all the time and rightly so. Uh, so probably there aren't too many questions why he's on the list. Um, but the reason I also have those two is there's a huge difference. Peter ultimately accepted the grace of Jesus and became um, a, a leader in the church. Judas basically is a footnote in Christian history because he did not ultimately accept that common grace. Now, as I mentioned, Dickens wrote The Tale of Two Cities, but Dickens, being human, can be trusted only so far to rightly portray human character at its best or worst. After all, what may have been his motives in writing the tale as he did? We don't know. The Bible, authored through the infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us the most comprehensive depiction of human nature. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture 
paints an unbiased panorama of human character, revealing both the glorious heights to which it can attain only through redemption by Jesus Christ and the wretched depths to which it can sink. Uh, as I mentioned, my message today was sparked by Peter's morning sermon a couple of weeks ago that he titled, A Passover Betrayal. And in that, the spotlight was on Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. And there was also a secondary focus on the other 11 apostles, who, along with Judas Iscariot, had participated that evening in the Passover meal, what we know as the Last Supper. So my focus is on Peter and Judas. My first point is the sinners. Again, Peter and Judas Iscariot. Both of these men abundantly experienced the common grace of God. Think about it. Approximately three years living with the other ten apostles, all of them closely abiding with Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, yet fully human like them. Experiencing Jesus' public ministry and private tutoring at no charge, the Savior of the world, pulling them aside again and again and again, explaining what they didn't understand, teaching them, emphasizing the truth of God's word. I mean, I literally right now just got goosebumps thinking. Only 12 men in all of history had that kind of intimacy with Jesus Christ, the man God. And experiencing life in every facet with Jesus, day in and day out, nothing hidden, the character of Jesus, an open book for them to read at all times. Anybody who lives with anybody knows that over time, you pretty much get to know everything about them. And Judas and Peter lived a life like that with Jesus Christ for approximately three years. Looking at Peter, ultimately, he laid down his life for Jesus Christ. Yes, he was a sinner. We know how he told Jesus, I will die for you. Very shortly after, Jesus told them, well, told them right then, tonight you're going to betray me three, three times. Peter couldn't even believe that. No, I will not. He denied that it was possible. Well, what happened? Peter denied Jesus that night three times. And then when that rooster crowed and it hit him, that he had just done what Jesus said he was going to do and what he had sworn he would never do. He was broken. And he wept. And he was filled with sorrow. And more importantly, he repented. And from that point on, what we see of Peter and what we read of Peter is that he became an absolute stalwart believer in Jesus Christ. He became a leader of the early church and ultimately was imprisoned and martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. 
Then we have Judas Iscariot. He took up his life for himself. As we know, the silver that he accepted in order to betray Christ. But ultimately, he also laid down his life for himself by committing suicide. And I'll get into that more. My second point is, we had the sinners. I'm going to talk a little bit about the sins. First of all, Peter. Essentially, he was a man who expressed and proved later in life that he believed, Father, thy will be done. And yet, as I just uh, pointed out, he denied Jesus three times at Jesus' darkest hour. I mean, if you ever needed a friend there, could there have been a time when you needed that friend more? So could there have been a time when it would have been more painful to know that that friend was denying that he even knew you? I just said they had lived three years together, shared everything. And so the pain that there had to be for Jesus at that time, it was the darkest hour for him. And that's the time that Peter denied him. But as I mentioned later, Peter repented. Peter did turn to Jesus. And he wrote First and Second Peter, which is in our Bible today, which we all benefit from. Just a, a man of God, a leader in the church, and a hero of the faith. And then we have Judas Iscariot. His, his mantra was not, Father, thy will be done. His actions proved that his mantra was, Father, my will be done. He was in it for himself, ultimately. And he died by suicide. He killed himself. And there is no more selfish act than suicide. And I want to be very careful in saying that because my heart breaks for anyone who is in such a hopeless state, is enduring so much pain, is so hurt and confused that they would take their own life. So I'm not saying this in judgment, and I'm not saying it lightly. But the truth is, there is no more selfish act than suicide, and here's why I say that. In terms of the effect it has on those who loved and were loved by the person who has chosen to take his or, own life, his or her own life. So devastating. All the questions that are never answered. Always, why? Why? Why didn't she get help? Why didn't she tell us? Why didn't, you know, why, God, did you let this happen? Why did you let it? Unbelievable pain and suffering. And so the reason I want you to understand is not a judgmental statement, but it's selfish in that there is harm done 
to every single person connected with that person than for the rest of those people's lives. And I say that to encourage any who might now or ever have such thoughts in the hopes that they would bear that in mind, that God's plan is not finished. And his plan for you, it says in Scripture that he will be faithful to complete the good work that he has begun in you until the day of Jesus Christ. That means until Jesus Christ returns. So, either you will have died before that, or Jesus will return and we'll all be taken up. But my point is, God isn't finished with you, so don't finish it for God. The question that, in my own, oh, sorry, in my own mind, I've, I've struggled with over time, but no longer struggle with, and that question is, is suicide sin? My answer is yes, and I'll explain why. Because I just explained it. It is God... <laughs> It's God who created our life. It's God who sustains our life. It's God who has determined when our life is supposed to end. And we are not to take that right, if you will, into our own hands from God and end our own life. So in that sense, is suicide a sin? Yes. Is it unpardonable sin? Um, in the Bible, you know, there's talk of the sin against the Holy Spirit, and basically that that, you know, is a sin, the unpardonable sin. No, suicide is not an unpardonable sin. It's my conviction that suicide is as any other sin, which, when committed by a believer, is fully covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I want to focus on that word appointed. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, this ties in with a point I just make. I, I just made that we are to leave the timing of our death to God. And this appointment, the underlying, the meaning, the root word of appointed in this scripture means to be reserved, to be laid up or laid aside for, uh, figuratively to await or to be appointed. In other words, it's been reserved by God and we are responsible to do what we can to keep living until that date arrives. The appointment, this appointment for once to die is for God to determine where, when, and how. He never delegates that decision to the person. Philippians 1, 23 to 24, the Apostle Paul, who suffered a lot, wrote, for I am in a strait betwixt two. In other words, he's in this tight spot that he doesn't know how to wiggle out of, in a sense. And he goes on to say, having a desire to depart. He doesn't mean go on a trip. 
He doesn't mean go on another evangelism journey. He doesn't mean go on a vacation. He's talking about, I have a desire to die. And to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Remember what I said about what is the selfishness of suicide because of the others that it harms deeply and does not take into account. To paraphrase what Paul says in Philippians uh, 1:23 and 24, I would put it this way. I would rather be with the Lord in heaven, but if God prefers I stay here on earth with you, then I stay. Cultural beliefs and practices assigning honor or prudence to suicide are satanic. It is never God's will for one to intentionally take his or her own life. Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, burdened with the humanly unbearable weight of what he was about to go through leading to his crucifixion, prayed in Luke 22, verse 42, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If anyone ever, from the perspective of human reasoning, had just cause for opting out of life by committing suicide, it was Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. He knew what was coming. When a person commits suicide, they actually don't know what's coming, and that's my point. God isn't finished. Well, Jesus was fully human, but he was fully God. He knew he was about to be separated from the Father. He was about to bear every sin that I've ever committed, and that would be enough. Now add in all of yours and all of every person that was ever going to live. That was put upon him and his Father had to turn away from him. And he knew that was about to happen. He was praying sweating drops of blood. I know I haven't ever been in such agony that I've sweat drops of blood. So, my point. But he did not allow his human perspective, his flesh, which he was fully human, to rule over the Holy Spirit that was in him. He carried through. Consider Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and what was the result? And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because Jesus chose to allow the Father's will to prevail over his own will, Jesus is now and forevermore will be, as Hebrews 12.2 concludes, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It is never a favor to any but the demonic powers of hell to take one's own life. So where must this cause us to look? The answer is that first phrase of Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. By the way, I forgot to mention my third point as I rolled into it. First point was the sinners. 
Peter and Judas. Second point was the sins, which I delineated a bit. Third point was the Savior, which I was just talking about. And now I'm going to move into application. And my application portion is actually, in many ways, I, I can't say it's the main portion, but it's the longer portion. But I will move through it quickly. How do we apply this message? We who are too often overcome by a flesh that seems, and I'm speaking of myself here, okay? By a flesh that seems closer to Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, than to Peter, the apostle who gave his life to help found and establish the fledgling church, ultimately being martyred for his faith. The key is this phrase in Hebrews 12:2: endured the cross. That is the picture of suffering. That Jesus was truly a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, is what convinces us of the fact that he was indeed fully like us. The same Holy Spirit that dwelt in the man Jesus and empowered him to endure also dwells in those of us who have been born again into the faith of Jesus Christ. And that same Holy Spirit is likewise available in full measure to each one who is willing to die to his own desires by placing his or her faith in Jesus and submitting to him as Lord and Savior. We will, I think, be greatly helped if we bear these things in mind. Had Judas accepted God's grace and repented at the very last after he had betrayed Jesus to the most unjust and horrible and possible, he would not be a footnote in Christian history. He, like Saul of Tarsus, who was also a murderer of Christians, we know him as Paul the Apostle. He was a murderer of Christians. He was, uh, you know, most wanted number one as far as the Christian church was concerned. They feared him. They shuddered if Paul came to town. But that man that we know as Paul the Apostle ended up respected because he took the pain and the suffering so that others might gain Christ. For too many of us, certainly for me, far too much of our time and energy is spent on pain avoidance. And yet, try as we might, we find that pain and suffering, both warranted and unwarranted, is the hallmark of the human condition. Why did Paul the Apostle have to suffer? <clears throat> Why did Peter the Apostle have to suffer? Why did Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, have to suffer? Why did Jesus Christ have to suffer? In each case, to prove beyond reasonable doubt his humanity. For deep inside each one of us, this truth abides. To be human on this sin-plagued earth is to suffer. God cannot use a person who has not suffered. That's why Jesus said of Paul, 
when he told Ananias, or really the Holy Spirit, told Ananias to witness to Paul, who had, who had recently been converted, but Ananias hadn't gotten the uh, email yet. Ananias shrank back, and he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, not him. Don't you know how he has persecuted believers, hunting them down and beating, imprisoning, and killing them every chance he gets? And Jesus, the Holy Spirit responded, and again, I'm paraphrasing, don't worry. I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Christian, the suffering that you have endured, that you have endured and gone on living in spite of it, is the mark of humanity, of realness, that is necessary for those who have not yet accepted Christ to accept that you are one of them. And if you are not real, you will not be effective in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is perfectly illustrated in Paul Harvey's retelling of a parable of the birds. Uh, older ones among us, very familiar with Paul Harvey, younger ones, maybe never heard of them, but back uh, in the day when radio was the thing, he had something called the rest of the story, and they were fantastic. And uh, this one relates to Christ and makes my point, I think, quite strongly, so I'm going to read it. This is a transcript of his audio. The Christmas story, the way it's usually told, God, born a man in a manger and all of that, escapes some moderns, mostly, I think, because they seek complex answers to their questions, and this one is so utterly simple. So, for the cynics and the skeptics and the unconvinced, I'd like to submit this modern parable. The man I'm talking about was not a Scrooge. No, he was a kind, a decent, a mostly good man, generous to his family and upright in his dealings with other men. But he just did not believe in all of that incarnation stuff, which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just did not make sense. And he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. He told his wife, I'm truly sorry to distress you, but I'm just not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay home, and that he, but that he would wait up for them. So he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Now, shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier. Then he went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, then yet another. At first, he thought somebody must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled out there, miserably, in the snow. They had been caught in the storm. In a desperate search for shelter, they had tried to fly through his large landscape window. That was what had been making the sound. Well, he couldn't let those poor creatures just lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter. All he would have to do is direct the birds into that shelter. Quickly, he put on a coat and galoshes, and he tramped through the de deepening snow to the barn. And he opened the doors wide, 
And inside the barn, he turned on a light so the birds would know the way in. But the birds did not come in. So he figured that food would entice them. He went back into the house and fetched breadcrumbs and sprinkled those on the snow, making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. The birds just continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He could not. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms. But instead, they scattered in every direction. Every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And that's when he realized that they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I'm a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Any move he made intended, he tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird now. I could be a bird and mingle with them and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them, wouldn't I? So they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. And he stood there listening to the bells Adesti Fidelis, which is, O come, all ye faithful, listening to the bells pealing the glad tidings of Christmas. And he sank to his knees in the snow. Like the man who wasn't a bird, we try to save the lost birds fluttering wildly and madly, bouncing off the lighted windows of this cruel, storm-driven world by shooing them into the barn of heaven, and they won't go in. In fact, the greater our efforts, the more futile they prove to be. Why? Because the birds don't see us as being like them. And because they don't see us as being like them, they don't trust us. And because they don't trust us, they can't believe us. And I mean, they truly can't believe us. They find it literally impossible. Because what is trust? It is belief. And what is belief? It is faith. And what is faith? It is the only key that can open the gates of heaven. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is why Christ had to suffer. That is why God, in his infinite wisdom, required his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man of sorrows acquainted with grief so that every soul on earth, scarred by the branding iron of suffering, can look upon the suffering Christ and relate 
and their resistance could then be broken for one simple reason. They would realize that, without a doubt, he's one of us. So how do we apply this? Until we start getting honest, until we start being open about our weaknesses and our brokenness and how it has brought us suffering upon suffering, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we will not earn the trust of others. And where must it begin? Right here in the house of God. By being broken. By being transparently honest about the pain we have suffered and the pain we are suffering and about our sinfulness that has, in most cases, brought that pain into our lives. Once we have trusted God enough to risk building those kinds of relationships within this body of believers that is Straight Gate Church, only then can we build those same kinds of relationships with the multitude of deeply wounded and broken souls that sit hopeless at this very moment. They are bound in sin's seemingly unbreakable chains, and they are unable to believe there is a Savior available to them because our pride, our hiding of our sins, past and present, cloak that reality in a darkness their spiritual eyes cannot penetrate. Christian, resolve to remove the cloak. Rely on the ready free mercy and grace of Jesus Christ for the courage necessary to remove it. Step out of the darkness of secrecy and into the glorious light of transparent honesty. Do that and you will be healed. Do that and you will experience the joy of others asking you to explain to them the reason for the hope that is in you. Do that, and you will see them healed as well.